Hello, listeners. I'm Hal. I am going to be hosting this little session. I'm here joined by the Stars Are Right cast from all three Cult of Cthulhu scenarios. And we're joined for this first part of the episode by the actual writers of Cults of Cthulhu, Chris Lackey and Mike Mason. Thank you very much for being with us, gentlemen. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We're very pleased to have you both. And we've got a list of questions uh, we've compiled from listener submissions and also some that we had for both of you. I'm going to attempt not to retread too much ground uh, that you've already covered in, I know there's been another couple of interviews that are out there on the web about this. Um, so, but to the best of my ability, we'll see how we go. I also appreciate the book has been out for quite a long time. So we'll try not to quiz you too hard on stuff that you were probably thinking about several years ago while you were writing it, <laughs> but we'll see how we go. Um, I've got the questions in front of me, so I'll be asking them, but I do invite anybody to jump in with follow-up questions, etc. It doesn't just need to be me talking. Uh, we're going to start with Chris and Mike. Well, we've got them, like I said, um, talking about the creation of the Cult of Cthulhu book and all sorts of good stuff. And then we will get into stuff that's specific to the Stars of Right playthrough afterwards. So let's kick things off. Uh, can we talk about the origins of the book? Um, I saw you mentioned elsewhere, Mike, that you had the idea, I think, and I'm, I'm quoting you here, Mike, you twisted Chris's arm into getting into the project. Does that sound about right? I'm, I'm sure that's mostly true. Um, I, I will let kind of Chris uh, give his version. But um, yeah, I mean, for a time, um, I've been, well, I am very conscious of the uh, lack of Cthulhu in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, very rarely makes an appearance, uh, if ever. And, uh, and the game is like, you know, well, now 41 years old. And um, it, I felt that uh, as we were coming up to the 40th anniversary, uh, a few, this was a few years before then, uh, that wouldn't it be quite good if we had a book that was solely about Cthulhu, finally? Um, and so that was in the back of my mind. And then by happy chance, uh, I was at Dragon Meet, uh, the convention in London, which takes place uh, early December every year. And uh, myself and Chris were chatting and I uh, very cavalierly suggested to Chris that he would be a great person to write a book about the cult of Cthulhu. And um, well, then I should perhaps should pass over to Chris and he can tell it from his side of the his side of the fence, as it were. I remember that pretty much the way that Mike said we were at Dragon Meet. It was uh, he goes, oh, I want to I want to do something with you. What should what would you be interested in? Cthulhu. We want to do a Cthulhu thing, maybe a cult focus on cults and humans and I go, oh that sounds great because there really isn't any sort of material just for cultists and cultists are a big part of of the mythos stuff and specifically the story of the call of cthulhu which the game you know is called so uh i said that's a great idea and i got really excited about it and then we started talking and then i think mike I wouldn't say twisted my arm because I was pretty keen on it. We agreed to do it. And so uh, from there, we just kind of figured out what we wanted in the book. And I think it was emails back and forth about chapters and what was going to, what we wanted in there and the exact structure of it. And that just kind of got bandied back and forth. And then we just kept filling in more and more details. And then it was finally sit down and just write the darn thing. Which was pretty easy to do, wasn't it, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> It was a breeze. I was, 
as a writing project, I thought it was actually really uh, smooth sailing initially. It was when we got to the adventure parts that things really slowed down because when you get to that, you've got playtesting involved and it's complicated because you're writing now for somebody else's game that they're going to play. And uh, just doing research and, and being able to write the first major section of the book, I think that was much more uh, accessible and attainable of a goal. But once once the actual modules were to be written, then it was like, well, what if they do this? Well, what if this happens? What, what if, what if? What? And you don't have to worry about that so much when you're just writing a history of Cthulhu mythos or coming up with characters or cults or, or any of those things. So that was by far the toughest bit. And I think if I remember correctly, Mike, I was pretty much on schedule with deadlines up until we hit those adventures and then things really started <laughs> yeah, slowing no, down. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, no, it was all, as you say, um, you, you know, the first, uh, you know, the first, well, two thirds, well, maybe not two thirds, first half of the book. Um, yeah, you, you know, it was all going swimmingly. And then I seem to remember getting the odd email from you going like, oh man, this, this scenario writing, it's far harder than, far, far harder than I remember <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, because when you're playing with your local group and you're you're just coming up with stuff off the top of your head or just planning a little bit, you, you can sort of wheel and deal as you're doing it. But when you're actually writing something down that people are going to be able to sit and think about and that they have to write, they have to run it for their players. So there's that extra step that you have to think about. It's like, well, what if, what's going to be the problem that this uh, keeper is going to have with this particular story or where might the characters go and it's it's that process which is so time consuming because you you really have to second third and fourth guess every thing that you put down in a scenario that is for print i mean if you want to do it right obviously um i'm wondering what was the collaboration for writing the scenarios like was it mostly you chris and then mike kind of contributed and edited and gave ideas or was it more 50-50 how was the spread between how much each of you did? I think I wrote the first drafts of everything, but then it got complicated <laughs> after that. And then Mike <laughs> stepped in. And I think Paul, Paul Fricka was also, he rewrote quite a bit of the last one as well. Oh, he's one of yeah. the and friends credited on the, okay. Oh, and friends, yes. Is that right, Mike? That's right. Because Mike... Did the edit, so he knows exactly who, how much everybody did. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Chris, Chris is absolutely right. Chris did the entire first draft of everything, uh, and because um, you know, from my point of view, I wanted Chris to have the freedom to express, you know, the book as he saw it, and as we'd kind of agreed it up front. Uh, and then, really, my job was to um, look for gaps and opportunities where we may have not you know, maybe have missed something or we want uh, some further depth into a particular, you know, aspect of the Cthulhu cult. Um, and with the scenarios, what I what I tend to do with scenarios is um, either I get into the bones of them and, you know, really, you know, go through them with a fine tooth comb to try to check the logic flow and all the rest of it, or um, I get somebody else to do that, and then and then I come on. And in this uh, in this case, um, I yeah I asked Paul Fricker to uh, to basically do it do a first kind of editorial pass on the scenarios, so mainly to kind of um, 
problem spot because it's like you know when you when you're writing a scenario yourself you don't see the wood for the trees uh, and often um mm -hmm. you just need a fresh pair of eyes to kind of go oh this all makes sense the logic flow is all fine until we get to this bit and suddenly we make an assumption uh that means the players would go to here when in fact they may not go to there because we're making an assumption and so forth uh, and so uh, Paul went through and kind of checked the logic through uh, and did like a, a second draft. Uh, what this was while I was working on the first half of the book, going through and editing and developmental editing that text. And so by the time I'd finished that, Paul had finished three scenarios and then I did my, uh, what you call a third pass on the scenarios and uh, was really, um, really testing the logic flow in them, testing the kind of what would the players do now kind of mindset. Um, you know, I'm, I guess I'm reasonably experienced to kind of think like a player when I'm reading a scenario that I haven't written and, um, and, uh, and basically apply that to kind of go, oh, okay, I think players could also do this here, which we haven't covered. We need to kind of build that in. Or it may be, um, I'm thinking of Loki's gift, I think there is a there's a there there's two kind of uh there's two kind of tufts that are kind of minding the uh the composer and uh they were, I think that was a pretty much a, a fairly throwaway line in the original kind of first couple of drafts but I felt that we needed to kind of beef them up and give them a kind of give the keeper some options of what they would do if the players you know start talking to them or attack them and so forth. So I think little areas like that where, where I'd beef it up and maybe develop some further material and so on. Uh, and also in the final scenario in the uh, God's Dream, uh, there's a particular way that it's presented in terms of um, the role of, well, I guess the role of Great Cthulhu in the scenario. And, um, and I could see that would be great for some groups, but I think some groups would, um, find that very constraining or difficult to embrace. And so, uh, what I, what I did was provide alternative reasons why certain things might happen in the scenario the way they do and so forth. So, I wasn't really changing the scenario. I was really just looking to kind of add some more depth and some more variations in terms of options that might happen uh, as and when you know, certain things occur. But that's kind of the, the process that uh, we well, we go through for pretty much every scenario we put out through Chaosium, to be honest. Those two Loki's gift tufts became like quite quite big NPCs for yeah. us, actually. Seesaw. We, we had callbacks for episodes and episodes. Seesaw was the strongest <laughs> man ever to live. He was great. <laughs> we were all very fond of him. Really I were. do not remember how much of that I made up. <laughs> um I was going to say about a God's Dream, I think our group enjoyed the kind of Cthulhuvian intervention. I don't think people felt like railroaded by it. Sorry, I have, I have one final question following up from this. And it is, I've been wanting to know who came up with a Carl Day hook mm. and the Antarctica and not Antarctica at the same time, because that yeah, might be my favorite hook, hook in, a, like, in a scenario so far. That, that was all Chris. Chris, congrats. Well done. <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm glad you liked it. It was yeah. inspired, yeah. It was inspired. It really got, a, got our motor running. It really was. It was just so <laughs> surprising. 
Well, with him talking to us on the phone after he'd been found in Antarctica, it blew our minds. <laughs> they loved it. And I loved it. As soon as I read the beginning, I was like, yes, <laughs> this is great. That's, that's a hook. Speaking of blowing, uh, <laughs> that's the world's me. worst segue, and I'm sorry. I, w- <laughs> I really am sorry. I wanted to go from blowing minds to blowing things up, but I okay. did it clumsily. <laughs> All right. I appreciate oh. the playtesting must have been absolutely ages ago, Chris. Um, but we were curious um, yes. if any particularly fun stuff happened in playtesting. And specifically, what was the most spectacular use of the explosives that the players <laughs> are given in a God's Dream? Because you're not often given a load of C4 <laughs> in a scenario. No, uh, I think, well, a lot of them didn't use it. I, that was one of the what? things that I thought was strange when in the what? games that I play tested. People were scared to use it for some reason, and I'm not sure why, but in two of the playtests that I did, they blew up mm-hmm. the lab, which is what I thought they would do. The, the, the lab that was actually on another planet. Is that how it ended up? That's what we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They went down there and they totally blew the whole thing up and, and got out of there. I think with most of their sanity intact. Yeah. Group. Not, not so much. Oh, yeah. Well, well, <laughs> yeah. 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 They did better than yeah. us in that case. When I, when I first read that, I, I, cause occasionally I, you know, very occasionally in the scenario, you'll come to this point where they go, and then the investigators get these machine guns or explosives or whatever it is. And I, I have to take a shark and take a breath and, and uh, go, okay, <laughs> let's, 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 let's continue reading and see what happens. And um, sometimes, you know, they, they uh, mysteriously disappear out the scenario because I think the potential for calamity is too high whereas in this one um given all the other strangeness that the the pcs are kind of exposed to uh, you know throughout the throughout this scenario in particular it just seemed to fit really well because it is kind of because i could imagine exactly what you know chris said in his group with with the you know they're given exposure but they they don't want to use them they don't know what they're going to do you know this is some sort of trap it's a trick and um and so i thought that that would work really well because it would you know, it would pose a quandary for the players. And often, you know, with good Call of Cthulhu scenarios, what you're looking to do is is, is to pose some sort of challenge to the, uh, or question to the players, which, you know, seemingly is an easy answer, but maybe it's not. And so, you know, that kind of generates debate yeah. at the table and, and it's all good fun. And that was what happened in our, those other playtests, the ones that were hesitant or didn't do it at all. It was like, wait, this all seems like we're supposed to, we're being manipulated I don't think this is right. And then they had that debate. And one of them was like, no, these are obviously bad guys making place. Somehow I could walk from one building and I'm on another planet. You know, that's not right. We've got to blow this place up. And it's like, no, it seems like we've got to blow things up, but we don't. And then that went on for too long. And then you throw some monsters at them to, to stop them from fighting about it. You know, it's funny. I think we pretty quickly decided that we were going to blow them up. It didn't take us long at all. Well, that's all. because you had baby Cthulhu whispering in your, in your ear. Oh, that's so yeah, what to do when he was your baby. So. It wasn't enough to blow the place up either. We strapped the explosives literally to ourselves as like oh suicide vests. Listen, so, we thought it'd be a good bargaining chip. Wow. It's worth saying, maybe for Chris's benefit, that three of the four of us took the um, Mythos Experience package for the start of a God's Dream, so we were already fairly far gone uh-huh. by the end of it. There was a lot uh, of bouts. I yes. think uh, it was probably the scenario where we had most of our favourite bouts. I'd say of madness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good escalation. 
Definitely. Absolutely. Um, Speaking of favourites, in writing the scenarios, did you have a favourite era you were writing for? And did you consider any other eras or locations other than the three that made it in? Uh, No, I mean, those seem like the the go-to times, uh, periods at least, and not the locations, but the periods of time. You've got a guest like Cthulhu, you've got 1920s Cthulhu, you have modern day Cthulhu. Uh, but the locations, I think I was trying to change it up a bit. London, obviously, well, you know, it's London, so that's not new. Uh, but setting something on the West Coast, I feel like there's not a lot of stories written uh, in the West part of America, especially Los Angeles. And Los Angeles in the 1920s was a zany place. There was lots of crazy people going out there because... It was this promised land. People wanted to be in movies and lots of people couldn't be in movies. So they just found these weird communities. And if you read about that, that history, that kind of that, um, that migration that happened out to specifically Los Angeles, it was a very bizarre time. And a lot of that is ripped from history. A lot of those ideas from that particular story uh, were borrowed from a few different things that were going on at the time. And then uh, I think... I think we, for the last story, it was, was it also Los Angeles? And then Mike said, no, no, we shouldn't do Los Angeles again. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And then we either talked about New York or Chicago. I'm trying to remember. It ended up in Chicago, I know, but I don't remember what the exact process was, but there was some back and forth about that last place. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm from Illinois. I'm from Illinois, so I, I know Chicago fairly well. And I think that's probably why we ended up stumping for chicago because of uh you can't yeah. you know uh the value of having the local knowledge is 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 immense when you are particularly a modern day scenario as well knowing where things are and how they connect yeah. is such a makes well it makes the scenario writing process easier and by that time chris i think i was just trying to help you to get through the final scenario <laughs> <laughs> yes you're right do either of you guys have like a uh, a fantasy uh, location or time period that you'd really love to write for, but it's just a bit too niche? Mm. Boy, that's uh, n- I know I haven't thought about. It. I'm, usually, I'm pretty set in my modern day and twenties Cthulhu, and I don't. Pr- I've played some Middle Ages before, and I think it's just too different of a time period. Like life was too different in the Middle Ages for me to really connect to those characters in that place. And it to try and keep it historically accurate, there is a great book I was reading uh, called uh, 500 AD, or is it AD 500, where it's a travel log written by some some people from, from Constantinople that are looking to go back to the British Isles to see if it's viable to be taken back by the empire uh, and this 580. So Rome has fallen and they're, they're going to kind of check it out. So it's this travel log of them going all around and it's such a weird, different culture and all the, you know, cause they were worried about the Saxons at that time. And there was the, one of the things I remember was um, in Ireland to show fidelity to a Lord or anybody to get protection, the, a man, you would have to suckle his nipple. <laughs> To wow. show. Okay. Oh yeah. There's all these really, and it was really common. And it, and anybody that was up. So it, as foreigners, they would have to find somebody that would protect them, and to show that they were protecting them, they would suckle their nipple. That's how I've gotten every promotion at work. <laughs> That's. <laughs> yeah. But there's so many bizarre 
people were so different yeah. back then. It, 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 it's just a different, there was another one I remember where they visited this village and part of visiting the village was winter. Everybody slept in a big pile in the house. So the whole family slept together in one big bed and the guests were stuck in the middle of the pile because that was the warmest spot. <laughs> And they were really uncomfortable because wow. these these guys from uh, Constantinople were like, this is weird. We are not into this, but we got to do what the locals want. So it, when I read about those historically, th you know, I feel like when we play medieval stuff, it's it's like a, a fantasy version of the medieval world. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's not it's not really mm -hmm. like that. And so for me, knowing the 20s really well, because I've read so much about that time period and and being in the modern day, that's the stuff that always interests me. Mike? Yeah, um, I guess the one I really am interested in, I mean, ah, it's, this is weird because back when, <laughs> back when I was, uh, you know, in my younger days, uh, it was in, you know, the 1980s and, um, I was growing up in the, obviously growing up in the seventies and, and, and whatnot. But, uh, so I, I'm attracted to uh, scenarios set in the 70s, 80s kind of period because there's a certain vibe, particularly to the 70s. Well, there is to both, but they're, but they're, they're quite different vibes. Uh, as I always describe, you know, when you watch a, a really good 70s movie, it kind of feels a bit grimy and dirty. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and in the yeah. 80s, it's more kind of um, slick and polished and uh, society kind of mirrors that somewhat uh, if you you know you look back and so i think those provide interesting you know backgrounds to scenarios uh, that are you know written today but set in that set in what is now history uh, because they they've got their own kind of uh, definitions those particular kind of uh, decades and so i i think um you know i'm particularly interested in those kind of things um and again there's not a you know there's not a lot uh, for those eras at the moment, although there's, you know, there have been some uh, interesting scenarios done, uh, particularly in the 80s uh, kind of vibe in, in the Miskatonic Repository and so forth. Um, the other obvious one, uh, which again, um, I've, I've run a campaign, just a homebrew campaign set in the late 1960s, because again, it's a crazy, it's a crazy time with a lot of, a lot of things going on. Um, and I think that just provides a really interesting backdrop to, to scenarios sometimes. So I think that, that kind of, you know, sixties through to eighties period is, uh, probably un underexploited at this moment in terms of, certainly in terms of Call of Cthulhu and something, you know, maybe that will, you know, develop over time as we, you know, move forward. I look forward to the scenario book. <laughs> I, I did, we did, we did, me and my friends came when I was running the, uh, the 1960s campaign, uh, a friend of mine coined the term, it's Cthulhu now, man. And <laughs> <laughs> Cthulhu bunga? Is that anything? <laughs> I can totally imagine something set in the 70s, a kind of Studio 54, Disco Cthulhu. I can definitely yeah. imagine that being a really interesting setting, the, the whole um, nightclubbing world of New York. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one more question about the settings. All three of these cult scenarios are based in large cities, which is obviously like great and familiar to a lot of people, but also quite a challenging choice in terms of 
player logistics and the amount of stuff going on. Did you find that challenging? And if so, how do you overcome it? Is the answer just uh, get Mike and some other people to look it over when you're done? No, uh, no, no. I I think city for me, city scenarios are a different animal because you, you there are so many options, and I think that that's good to give players uh, ways to think outside the box or think of contacts. If you if you do something more rural, then it's there's less options, especially if they're stuck in a small town or if they're you know at a house. I, I've written scenarios where we've done they're just at a house. I think uh, the mansions of madness we. I wrote one for that, the the new one that just came out, or not just came out, it's been, <laughs> it's been years now. Uh, no, but it's a different dynamic. And I think Trapped in a House are good for maybe one shots or, or quick adventures. With with these, I they're a little bit more complex. These are definitely more than one uh, session, I think, for each of these scenarios. And in this, like I was trying to say there, in the city, there's more people you can talk to. There's more resources that you're able to tap into. And I think that that's fun for players. And it also keeps the GMs on their toes. You're right. It is harder because when you give them access to all those things, they can come up with crazy things that you don't anticipate. They're like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go down to the, to the steel mill. And you're like, oh, steel mill? And they're like, oh yeah, the Chicago, there's got to be steel mill. And you're like, oh right, of course there'd be a steel mill there. Yeah, geez, I never think of that. So, you know, that kind of stuff, it, it it can it could be problematic, but I I like that, and I I think that more options is more fun in my opinion. But yes, it makes it harder to write scenarios. I, I mean, yeah, I mean that, what Chris has said is absolutely true. Uh, I think the the real plus side of city based ones it, where where you've got a a breadth of scenario, and particularly something like a Godstream, which has got a lot of breadth to it in terms of the actual cult that's involved. Um, it allows not only the players to kind of, you know, go off track a little bit and, and maybe come at, come at the different challenges with some, you know, some innovation and some new ideas that maybe, you know, we weren't expecting, but hopefully, you know, the keeper, you know, is, is, uh, you know, on point to kind of meet those challenges. But equally, it provides the keeper some flexibility and challenge as well, because, um, they can broaden things out. They can, very easily create NPCs on the spot that the players are never going to meet again because it's a city-based thing um, and and reinvent how the clues may be found and so forth and actually adapt to the players as they go forwards, perhaps, uh, which is slightly harder to do when it's, uh, as Chris says, a, a, a very small rural setting where kind of everyone knows everyone and the investigators walk down the street and everyone sees them, including the cultist. Uh, whereas in the city, the players, just like the bad guys, can get lost and neither, neither necessarily will see the other ones coming, you know, until, until, you know, until the appropriate point. And so it just allows the players some cover. Um, but it also allows the bad guys some cover as well. So I think it, it, it kind of provides us some more flexibility in how the story is told at, you know, your particular games table. And there's also an angle of it too is i i've lived in cities my whole life so i also know cities better than i do a small town even though i visited many small towns and my grandparents lived in small towns uh it's a it's a completely different dynamic and a vibe that i uh, just felt more comfortable writing for cities as well the i mean the other thing to just add on but again i, I mean as 
I was working on a God's dream. Given the, given the proficiency and size of the cult, you know, you're dealing with, um, it, it, it <laughs> they, they have so many options. And I could imagine, and Chris has already said this is, this is very clearly not a one session scenario. And I, and I could see this is actually the bones of a, a broader campaign. You could literally run a God's dream and, you know, throw in, you know, different, you know, new invented components that you've come up with as a keeper um, to kind of really broaden things out. And so you could actually be uh, just, you know, one part or maybe the the, the ongoing, you know, threads to the campaign that builds to a, to a big climax. But actually you can have lots of other things happening with the cult, you know, on a much more lower scale that the players are interacting with. And actually as they do that, they, they kind of then fall into the actual start of the investigation proper. But uh, it just struck me that, you know, with the scale of the cult that it was, you know, having it uh, being able to expand outwards in terms of play would be a good thing uh, because I could imagine some groups really getting into that. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, and again, a city background to do that gives the room for that to grow. Uh, also for that, that particular cult, uh, we have them as one of the background cults in the book as well. So for, with that, you could easily build a campaign. I mean, just because the way that the scenario ends does not mean that's the end of that cult at all. And, you know, now the, the if anybody survived <laughs> by the end, if there were survivors, they would be on the radar of this cult. And it, it could be a, a jumping off point for a campaign. And I think there's lots of interesting threads that uh, those players can still explore if they were interested in that in particular. I think we try to do that with every single one of those stories that, that those cults, except for, yeah, maybe, maybe not the middle one. The middle one had almost, it could have been catastrophic uh, for the cult at the end of that one, depending on how it got played out. So that, that might've actually finished off that entire cult there. But even in God's dream, even if the characters blew up all that stuff, it was not the end of the cult by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, speaking of that cult, um, I think we definitely felt an echo of the Church of Scientology in the Church of Perfect Science. Really? <laughs> yeah, just, I don't know. Something wow. Impossible. That was really weird. I don't, know, I don't know how you got to that. No idea. Man, I, I never saw that. <laughs> <laughs> we were wondering whether the uh, cults in Loki's Gift and Angel's Thirst were also inspired by uh, real-world organizations, and come to that, the other cults uh, covered in the setting book. Well, yeah, more loosely, um, just the, sort of the secret societies, the the gentlemen's clubs, and in London at that time, there, there were so many of those uh, different. You know, the order of. Order of the Golden Dawn, Order of the, the... I mean, if you if you go back and look, there's just tons of them. That was the popular thing to do for men at the time. And they they just would go to these places, put a lot of money into them, and then get up to shady things, uh, rich people. And I always thought that was kind of a an interesting place for somebody to actually stumble on something that was real, uh, like a in the, in the setting, a real powerful entity. They're not just dudes fooling around, uh, you know, fulfilling kinks they're actually amassing power and then what would that look like and of course uh the idea that there's a few in the know and they're going to manipulate all those other rich guys to give them more resources and power so that they can hunt down those things i, I thought that was an interesting idea so that's that's where that came from and yeah the 
the angels' thirst, uh, the one in the twenties, that there was a woman who had a cult, and I thought that was really interesting. Uh, in in Los Angeles, and they found a bunch of bodies. That, that that's real. Like she, they found a bunch of bodies that she had under the, the building, and I don't think they ever identified them, if I remember correctly. It's been a while mm. uh, since I did the research on that. I think we wrote this in twenty sixteen because I think all the stuff sent in twenty seventeen, and I thought, oh yeah, this book maybe it's twenty fifteen. I'm like, oh, this will be done in two years, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking that. And it didn't happen. No, but yeah, so I tried to find things that were sort of interesting and take little bits here and there. But there were a lot of of these cults in Los Angeles. So it, or maybe cult's kind of a strong word. There were a lot of lost souls and there were people there to take advantage mm. of them. And, uh, you know, they take the money or they would get them to work for them or they would, uh, there was, you know, do pornography or whatever, whatever way they can take advantage of them. They would. And I thought that was, you know, again, talking about building cults, that's a whole section of the book where they you find people that are looking for a place to belong. And that's the best way to get somebody hooked in. And once they're there, then you could kind of start getting them to do things that they probably wouldn't normally do. And then, then, then there's the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the start of the book with the various kind of uh, different kind of cults that are kind of given a given a brief outline this uh kind of lower rising you know the the fusion jazz rock group from the 1970s i mean that's that's uh, they're true aren't they i mean that's uh you know (laughs) we've all got we've all got those (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh yeah Yeah, when i I read that i just it just rung so many bells of like groups that were like this isn't a million miles away from (laughs) from from many yeah no 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 not at all groups you know well sure or like going to fish concerts or uh the you know the um the grateful dead where these i've never been to a grateful dead concert but talking to the people that were at those things those were insane like people would just get super high and weird things would happen and i one dude was telling me that a friend of his this is a friend of a friend so you know it's true (laughs) a friend of his uh uh said that he saw aliens like really swear to god the aliens came down and listened to the grateful dead with him like that happened that was a real thing (laughs) nice uh obviously he was high at the time you know he says oh yeah i was totally high but i don't think i would have saw him if i wasn't high and i'm like well yeah probably that he wouldn't have seen him if he wasn't high (laughs) like that somehow made it real you know because oh i took drugs so that shifted my perception to see the aliens that weren't there it is like but or to hallucinate which is what (laughs) drugs do i don't know could be one or the other but that idea but there was that idea to me that was like wow well these places people are really they're messed up there's a lot of them crazy stuff's going on it would be really easy to take advantage of people and i thought that would be a cool cult Speaking of cool cults, do you have a favorite out of the whole bunch? Or, well, I mean, do you have a favorite real world or fictional cult? <laughs> well, boy, that's a, <laughs> well, the real world, I, I, and this is something Mike and I talked about. We try to stay away from the real world cult stuff as much as possible. I mean, obviously it's influenced, but that stuff's so sad mm. and uh, terrible. And all those people, you know, like, you know, the stuff with Jim Jones and, you know, all those people committing suicide. And there there are some references to that because I feel like you've got to kind of acknowledge that that's part of it, but wanted to 
take, take a step or two back away from those real world things, because this is a game and it is supposed to be fun. And there's, it's a strange thing about horror is that you want it to ring true in one way, but then you, I personally don't want it to ring true in a separate certain way. Like if it's a little too real, um, you know, like if I read a, a horror story and it has violence to children in there, I, I don't mm. like that. But, yeah. it's, but if, if some cultist is getting flayed alive, I don't care. It doesn't, you know, it's like, oh, that's creepy. You know, that's, it's not that I don't care. It's just creepy, but it instills kind of um, a fear excitement that, that I think that's why people are drawn to horror. Whereas with, sometimes if it hits a nerve that you're like, oh no, that's, I feel uncomfortable and sad, like sad mm -hmm. horror. I don't like things that go, oh God, that's just, no, that. I, I don't want to, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. So there's that line that you've, I feel like when I'm writing these things and these scenarios that you want it to be sort of a little, you know, creepy, definitely creepy, a little bit scary, even a, a little titillating in a way. But then there's that, those lines that you don't cross and it, it's different for everybody, everybody. And that's the whole X card thing that, that's popular in role-playing games now, which I think is a good thing where you talk to people before you start playing a game about like, is there things that you don't like? And, and that's good. So I trying to anticipate things that other people aren't going to be into. And then I stuff that I know I'm not into. I try to avoid that. Does that answer that? You're asking about real world cults. So no, <laughs> I don't really have a favorite real world cult. That's fine. That that's pretty good because most of the time it's terrifying to me, like genuinely terrifying, especially when you see uh, just big. I mean, I don't want to get political, but there's the, the I feel like the cult of Trump is something that's insane to me where I see these, mm -hmm. these people acting in you know, yeah. insane ways that it's uh, well, what's going on. How, you know, how, why are these people behaving in this way? And it, it, a lot of those elements are cult like type things where people just they're on board and they, they're going to do whatever it takes to to fulfill this idea of what they believe is right. And uh, that's yeah, that can be upsetting. But in a Cthulhu version, you know, where they're praying to some ancient God and they're hoping that he's going to like them and give them some stuff or be nicer to them than other people. That's great. I love it. Was there a favorite one in the actual book? Oh, in the book. Um, I think the 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 one in the last, in, in God's dream. What was the final name? Because we changed the name. <laughs> What's the name um, of the cult? The Church of Perfect Science. That's it. The Church of Perfect Science. Yes, because the the name that I originally had turned out to be a real thing, and so I had yeah. to change it. Even though I did a search, I did an internet search, I didn't find it. And the Michaels, no, actually, dude, this is real. And I'm like, what? Oh, damn it. So we had to change the name. So it's the Church of the Perfect Science is what it is in the book. Yeah, that's what we ended up with. Um, yeah, I think that's really neat. And I lived in Los Angeles for uh, about 16 years and was involved in the filmmaking industry. And so there's sort of uh, things that I learned about the filmmaking <laughs> industry. <laughs> I kind of slip a lot of that stuff in there as well, because I know uh, the Church is the true science perfect what is it <laughs> perfect science church of the perfect science church of the perfect science uh uh they use a lot of celebrities obviously mm -hmm. in in theirs and so i was able to tie that stuff in and you know write what you know so, so th that for me was the most fun uh group you know like one of them is a is a very popular 
celebrity whose rising star is going down and he's he's the secret cannibal. And I just I love it. I think that's <laughs> that's so to think of somebody like a Tom Cruise or a or a um what's what's a, a John Travolta <laughs> like you if you if you found out they were like a cannibal you go <laughs> yeah. you know what I could see that I could see that we loved that cheesy NPC portrait it was so good <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna turn the same question over to Mike so with a very reasonable caveat that real world cults are indeed very sad um, but do you have a favorite fictional cult? Um, yeah, uh, I mean, all the things that Chris said uh, apply to real world cults. I mean, I mean, I'm interested in them and I watch copious documentaries, uh, that, you know, that turn up, uh, but, um, I, I, do as well. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to join one. And, uh, and as Chris said, they often, it's just very, you know, troubling and sad and, and, uh, unfortunate, uh, most of the time, it seems. Um, the cult of, you know, Star Wars seems okay, though. I mean, that's a modern-day cult, isn't it? You know? <laughs> in uh, in Vader, we trust, and so forth. But, um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but no, but in terms of fictional, uh, I think, um, I guess I have a soft spot uh, for the elevated order of Morpheus because it is uh, Gaslight England. And, um, I'm a big, mm -hmm. big fan of the, the gaslight, you know, Cthulhu by gaslight setting. Um, and so, um, I really, I really enjoy playing, you know, people like, uh, Cecil and so forth in <laughs> as NPCs. And so I kind of enjoyed, you know, playing those kind of characters. So, uh, it kind of, uh, it hits the button with me. Um, I, I can't go without saying though, the other cult in the book that probably doesn't get mentioned so much because it's not one with a big write up and it's really just used as an illustration of how to design your own cult for the game, uh, in the, uh, creating a cults chapter is the, uh, this Chris came up with this one, not wasn't me, but the, uh, the, uh, the mushroom cult, which I thought was just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, they have they they have their uh, special space mushrooms that allow them to uh, hear the uh, hear the dreams of Cthulhu and uh, and uh, well then it all goes wrong really doesn't it? But uh, but it's a you know it's a it's a it's a great kind of fun uh, kind of setup for that and uh, just like the idea of cultists kind of dealing shrooms to one another and hey I I, I don't I don't want those magic mushrooms that they're, they're not the real stuff I want the space mushrooms. So, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, that, that was based off like, not, not that I knew any of this, but I used to work on third street promenade in Santa Monica and in offices there. And so there were all these street kids that just were homeless and they kind of had these little, they weren't gangs cause they didn't really cause any trouble, but they just hung out there. And I knew a bunch of them lived in the mountains of, of Malibu. So there's these big woods out there and they, the, a friend of a friend I went out to his cat. He built a shanty cabin out in the middle of the woods, like illegally. So he had this, it was really nice. It was like this really nice little, so he snuck up all this stuff. He had a secret way. There was no real path and he had to go there a different way because if he kept going the same way, he would leave a path and people would be able to find the path to his house. It was crazy. So that was the whole inspiration of that cult was these these people that I knew, you know, kind of mixing and matching to make it into one thing because it was different groups. But it was, uh, yeah, I, I really like that one. That could have been a cool one. And then also the, the one entry of the guy that built a giant Cthulhu out of tires <laughs> by the side of the road. 
<laughs> that's I love that guy. Yeah. And his poor Cthulhu got burned down. Oh, I remember so reading that. That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And again, that's based on there's all these strange um, artists. I, I was just in uh, last month. I was in Wisconsin, and there is this guy that built all of the beautiful artwork out of junk like metal and he's welded like giant spaceships and giant uh like insect creatures and all these weird it's insane i can't it's called like dr zarbots oh man what's the name of it it's just a roadside thing you would never know about it but it's it's if you go into these like guides like weird america and it's huge i mean the, the, this area that this guy had it's tucked in the way in the woods you would never see it if you were if you drove by it, you would never know. You just have to f know about it. And the idea that there was some guy who had this vision, he goes, you know what I'm going to do? Take what he has at hand, a bunch of old tires, and he's going to make this giant Cthulhu. And it's going to be exciting. So, yeah, I that's what I really liked as well. And it felt very American to me as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I loved all of the bringing in of sort of the artsy types in the various mm -hmm. scenarios. Like, it really... It really brought home that it was Cthulhu related as, uh, as well, you know. So definitely, and how it was different kinds of art as well, like the little boy with the comic. Um, yeah, that was great. Yeah, that's possibly one of my favorite favorite little sort of NPC interactions ever. I was desperate to mm -hmm. to make that yeah. handout. Oh, oh yeah. Well, that would have been a great. I didn't even think of that. That would have been a great idea. But I guess <laughs> it depends on your characters, obviously, to to be able to fit in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of that was because, and Mike and I were talking about going to the source, you know, going to the Call of Cthulhu story and trying to take everything from that as much as we can and keep going back to it. Everything that Castro said, you know, the idea that there was this event that artists and open-minded people or people that were, had some kind of uh, different way of seeing things. Those are the people that are touched by uh, Cthulhu and Cthulhu's mind or his dreams or whatever. and. Uh, I remember that was just, we kept going back to that, kept going back. Like, what does this mean? You know, the, this thing that Castro said, where we're going to, when humans become more like the gods, they, when they become more like that, then there's going to, Cthulhu will come back and there will be this ecstasy and there will this be, there will be a, a Holocaust and there will be a new world and there will we'll learn new things. So it's like, what does that mean? And it could mean so many different things. And that's kind of what we, where you know we try to do is kind of come up with different interpretations of that idea and and i th i think you can track back almost everything that happens with each of those groups into that basically everything that castro said because he's the only cultist in lovecraft stories that actually tells you what's going on that gives it to you whether or not it's true or not you know that's up for up for grabs but we just went with it it's like yeah why would he lie let's let's just go with this and it's the truth as he sees it. So you got to look at it again that way as well and extrapolate from there. I have to ask at this point, uh, if you were going to set up a cult, what would it be like? It sounds like you've got a lot of fun ideas boiling around in your head at this point. <laughs> what for the game or in real life? No, no, I, real life, I think. <laughs> the, the sad ones. <laughs> Maybe it is too sad. Listen, either. Go fictional with it. That's fine. Uh, well, I, th I, th gosh, well, I mean, I came up with a bunch of them for, for that game, so I, I think I might be culted out. I think it, that might be... <laughs> Which one would I haven't you really... like to run, though, as a head of oh. the cult? <laughs> oh, that's good. The cult. They're all pretty 
terrible. They're all pretty mean. Uh, I, I guess I would make a new cult then that mm -hmm. would be more about like, you know, helping people out and growing produce in your garden. Oh, I like Aww. that. That would be a good cult. cult. <laughs> Very sustainable cult yeah. as well. You know, once Cthulhu does actually exactly. wake yeah. and the world. Trying to make eldritch-shaped vegetables. <laughs> Going to make your own entertainment after the uh, inevitable fall of the world. I guess. Uh, Mike, same question for you. Do you have a, a cult you're just itching to run? I, I, d I have to... <laughs> I hold my hands up and say, sometimes I feel like I, I do already. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I go I to conventions, and I meet uh, a, a wide variety of people that play Call of Cthulhu who all have their questions and uh, their interpretations of uh, not only the scenarios, but the rules and so forth, just like you might have with a, a religious text, different interpretations. And uh, they all get together at these bigger kind of, you know, gatherings. Uh, these rituals uh, where they uh, undertake their own minor rituals, which we call games. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and they have a, a, a kind of, a, they, 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 they put their energy into it and they come away feeling refreshed and energized and happy. <laughs> and they have these tales that they share. So I, I think, you know, it, it already exists really for me yeah. in that way. So they, they draw Definitely. tales and then they share them. Tell us more about that part. Well, it, well, it's, you know, <laughs> They, uh, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, often you will, uh, you know, find, uh, someone who will, you know, want to tell you about their, their game or they, they might do a podcast and, uh, tell everyone about, <laughs> tell everyone about their experience and, uh, what they did and what they liked and what they didn't like and so on. So, yes. <laughs> there, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that in a, in a good way. I would say that's a good cult because it's, it's benefits. Uh, far outweigh any any deficit that would come from being a member of this cult but it's a connection you're finding <laughs> like-minded people you're uh you're like mike said you're organizing you're doing activities together uh, uh yeah and i think it's a pretty awesome cult the cult of the cult of cthulhu <laughs> my title drop well, you've Sorry. got ritual items as dice as well yeah and um, uh, like we said you know it is um it's a very positive thing and it's a very um, energizing and liberating kind of, you know, pastime. Yeah. And, and uh, so it's all, it's all based around the concept of fun. You know, fun is our credo. Let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love this cult. <laughs> and on that really positive note, I think we'll draw this first part to a close and we'll come back next episode with even more questions for Chris and Mike and for the Stars of Right cast as well.